begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show in prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gift of faith and for the continual grace you give me to nourish and strengthen it. Enable me to cultivate the genuine desire for you that lies beyond the zealous search for justice, truth, love, and peace found in our contemporaries. Encourage these searchings, O Lord, and grant that all true seekers may look beyond the present moment and catch sight of your countenance in the world. Come to the aid of those who are weary and disillusioned in their searching and inspire them with renewed hope during this season of Christian hope. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we head to the archives today, and we'll be revisiting some of our favorite interviews of days gone by. And we really do have an excellent hour ahead. We'll kick things off this morning with Stephanie Mann from supremacyandsurvival.blogspot.com talking about this idea of winter without Christmas. And no, we're not talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, but about a time in Protestant recusant England when Christmas was not celebrated and and how it was revived. Liz Lev will be joining us this hour to talk about the role of St. Joseph in depictions of the nativity in art. Father John Gavin will be joining us as well And he's going to be unpacking the church fathers and the role of the angels in the nativity. Joseph Pierce will be along talking about one of his favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, and his Father Christmas letters. And then we'll wrap things up for the hour with Father Philip Michael Tangora, and he's going to be unpacking the theology of Adeste Fideles, O Come All Ye Faithful, a favorite hymn during the Christmas season. Hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Stephanie Mann, the author of Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endured the English Reformation. She's got a great piece up at the National Catholic Register about the history of Christmas and uh, how legal authorities in the English-speaking world have handled it over the years. Stephanie, good morning. Right, it's the 17th century war against Christmas. I know it. So today we think of the war against Christmas as being a secular thing. In a lot of uh, the English-speaking world, the war on Christmas, at least in the 17th century, was actually coming from other Christians. That's right. It was the uh, Puritans versus the Catholics and the Anglicans. Of course, I mean, the Catholics were the minority, but the the Anglican minority, the majority Anglicans, in fact, were... uh, prevented and forbidden from celebrating Christmas uh, by when the Puritans uh, reigned in England. In fact, during the, during the English Civil War, we have this, this contrast of uh, Charles I, the king, moved his court to Oxford. So in Oxford, they had Christmas. In London, they fasted. 
on December 25th, because Parliament had proclaimed a day of fasting. Uh, the Puritans did not like Christmas one because they did. They, they kind of had, and I think Catholics hear this today. Uh, this idea that Christmas is just a papered-over pagan holiday that Catholics uh, uh, just uh, absorbed uh, the the feast of the sun god and turned it into a day for celebration of, of the birth of Christ of Jesus, and also they didn't like the revelry, they, which sometimes did could result in some uh, people getting a little drunk and having too, maybe too much fun, but they really did have a, a religious, a theological, uh, and biblical uh, animus against Christmas, and they thought it was a papist holiday, and so if the Anglicans were celebrating it, they were next door to being papist anyway. Well, it's kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who show up at my door sometimes say, one of them once told me, you know, I don't see anywhere in the Bible that Jesus celebrated his birthday, why should I celebrate mine? <laughs> okay, well then... Don't have any fun. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I feel like this is a cause for celebration. I mean, the incarnation, uh, the birth of our Lord is worth celebrating. Uh, now, there was a movie that recently came out, Stephanie Mann, and I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It was called The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's a movie about Charles Dickens. Now, that's kind of a presumptuous title because uh, obviously Christmas around long before Dickens and, of course, Francis of Assisi probably invented a lot of what we think of as Christmas today, uh, devotionally speaking. But in what sense did he kind of rescue Christmas? Well, Dickens did revive and, and through the uh, particularly A Christmas Carol. He had other Christmas stories, but A Christmas Carol is the most famous one with uh, Ebenezer Scrooge going through this uh, the Christmas, the spirits of Christmas, past, present, and future. This whole idea of Christmas as a time of family and feasting and fun and charity, but also Christmas is basically being Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So, in a way, he did kind of reinvent Christmas into what uh, what we think what we really have now, which is all that preparation that everyone's been going through the twenty five days of Christmas that everyone's been going through since the, December first. While we've been celebrating Advent, and then Christmas Day, Christmas ends uh, the evening of, of Christmas on December 25th, and it's over. Whereas we have a season that follows after that in the in the church, and it, and if you're trying to celebrate it in the Catholic way in your home, but Chesterton, I mean Chesterton points out in fact that what Dickens did was, and because he didn't really understand it, he kind of adapted all the old. English ways, the old medieval Catholic ways of celebrating Christmas, but because he really didn't understand the Incarnation, he didn't understand religion, Dickens didn't quite fulfill it, and so he kind of cuts it off, and he leaves a big hole, and of course one of the holes he leaves is Jesus, is kind of left out, but also the whole celebration of the Christmas season is truncated by a Christmas carol. But still, there's a lot of uh, description of beautiful foods and people's spirits being high, kind of that magic of Christmas that a lot of people emphasize in many ways today. Well, Stephanie, as you know, I work for the Coming Home Network, and I can't resist a good conversion story, and the Christmas Carol is that. Yes, it is. That's one of the things that Chesterton points out, because he really appreciated Dickens. Dickens was one of his favorite authors. He wrote about him twice, and Chesterton points out that that story is a conversion story. Uh, Dick, uh, Scrooge needs to be converted, and all of us need to be converted from something in some ways. It's, it's like, as you know from the, the Coming Home Network, it, the conversion is a, a journey in itself, and uh, it's just that Scrooge used to do it in, uh, with three magical visits in one night, and it, just in time for Christmas Day and the 
gets a turkey to the Cratchits. I, I wonder what Mrs. Cratchit really did when she saw that turkey. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a huge thing, and it, she was going to have to get it ready. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I was about day. to say, we haven't had an overnight delay this thing thaw from the freezer section at Kroger. So yeah. um, the other thing I, I think that people don't realize, I certainly didn't realize this as a Bible Belt Protestant growing up for the first 25 years of my life, is that Christmas wasn't a federal holiday here in the United States till after the Civil War. That's right. In fact, there were part, again, because of the immigration and the colonization of, of uh, North America, I mean, especially in the uh, eastern part of the country, the... Uh, uh, by the British, I mean by the English, many of them were Puritans. And so if you were in a colony that the Puritan uh, theocracy ruled, you would not celebrate Christmas either, and you could be fined if you were seen publicly celebrating Christmas, in other words, having some fun on Christmas Day. And that lasted uh, really until the Civil War. I mean, the, the, obviously with the Church of England, the Episcopalians was the uh, church of your colony, then you would celebrate Christmas. The Moravians, the Germans who came to uh, Pennsylvania, they celebrated Christmas. But So there was a, even a division there. But it really wasn't until 1870 that Ulyss, President Ulysses S. Grant proclaimed Christmas a federal holiday. It still didn't mean it applied to all the states, but at least it was a federal holiday recognized by the United States of America. Wow. Well, if you want to read more about Stephanie Mann's history of this, it's well worth checking out. It's at the National Catholic Register. The title of the article is Just Like Narnia, Winter Without Christmas. Of course, you made an allusion to the White Witch and her war on Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia. But you should check it out. Stephanie, thanks so much. Have a Merry Christmas. You too. Talk to you next year. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. Wherever you are in the world, you can access the EWTN Global Catholic Network. It's everywhere. You can get EWTN's great Catholic programming on your car radio, at home on your TV, computer, or smart speaker. With EWTN's app, you can take EWTN everywhere on your phone or mobile device. If you want your news in print, turn to EWTN's paper of record, the National Catholic Register. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. 
Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Liz Lev, art historian, guide to Rome in Italy. She's author of several books, including How Catholic Art Saved the Faith and The Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph in Art. Good morning, Liz. Welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And I am excited to talk about The Silent Night with a K and depictions of The Silent Night without a K. That is St. Joseph in nativity scenes. I mean, I guess this is the perennial question in any labor and delivery scene, right, Liz? What exactly is dad's role during this event? And, you know, we don't hear the Gospels in the Gospels that, that Joseph does anything specifically. So do artists over the century take a lot of creative license here? Oh, yes, they do. Actually, they start out with a completely absent Joseph. So when we look at the early Christian art, the the, the sarcophagi in the Vatican Museum, for example, Joseph is nowhere to be found. And then he begins to appear sort of gazing off in the wrong direction, uh, <laughs> and then sometimes he gazes off in a sort of the vague direction of the child, and these are the early images or the early attempts to try to think about what Joseph was doing. But as the years move on, as we get towards the first millennium, artists really start to take Joseph as a kind of inspiration of how does a regular Joe if you will, react to the birth of God. Yeah. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Joseph. You know, like you think about the dad in the delivery room not knowing, I mean, just like deer in the headlights, and and then you have Joseph. So I'm not surprised to hear it going all over the place in art. And we're going to look at some of your favorite depictions of St. Joseph. So let's jump into this. Uh, Tell us about Nicola di Tommaso's nativity. This is the vision of St. Bridget, who looks to be off to the side, meditating on it, praying the rosary. It's actually a really, really beautiful image, and it's, it, gives, it actually, if you will, gives birth to many, many images that we know today. So during her visit in the Holy Land, St. Bridget had a vision in the cave of Bethlehem, and as if she sort of saw the nativity taking place. And she sees Joseph bring Mary in, then he leaves the room, and during that time, he leaves the cave, and during that time she glows with light. In the midst of this glow, Jesus appears, and he too is glowing, and Mary kneels down to worship the child, and then Joseph comes back, and he too joins in in the adoration of the child. So it's this very serene, holy image where we see these figures simply gathered around this infant who lies very humbly on the ground, emanating these golden beams of light. But it's given us many, many, many. If you start looking at your Christmas cards, your listeners look at their Christmas cards this year, they'll see lots of these images where Jesus is lying on the ground. That comes from the vision of St. Bridget. Wow. And and what do you like particularly about St. Joseph in this in this image? Well, I like the fact that he's at rock. I, I think it's a very interesting way that St. Bridget, in a very early period, is trying to understand Joseph's participation. And Joseph's participation is prayerful contemplation, so this sort of co-realization on the part of both parents that something extraordinary is happening, that there really is not a lot for either of them to do, apparently, except for adore and, and recognize God-made man. Well, we'll move on now to Barocci and um, a much more active Joseph in this one. 
this is a very, very beautiful image. It's a counter-reformation image. And, of course, most of my favorite images come from that mm-hmm. period, which explains why I study that period. Um, it, this, this interesting way where Mary and Jesus appear closest to the viewer. So it's a night scene. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Many, many, many Christmas cards made out of this. He's a very the cute baby scene. Jesus, too. And he's an adorable little cuddly, rosy-cheeked baby Jesus. And Mary and Jesus are kind of closest to us as the viewers, and they're emanating this light. And if you look towards the back, you see Joseph opening the door for these faces that are peering around the doorway, guiding people into the story. And I think it's an interesting evolution from the St. Bridget story, where we go from St. Bridget and Joseph, just just Joseph and Mary, and they're contemplating Christ. But now Joseph goes to the door. He says, come on in, come on in, don't be afraid. And Joseph, who again is that kind of dad in the delivery room, what do I do? Joseph sees his role as the one who says, don't be uncomfortable, don't be afraid, come on in and see this amazing thing that's happening. So he becomes kind of the greeter for the worshipers. And I love how he points to Jesus. It's such a dramatic gesture. He points right along the line, so he follows the entire sort of perspective diagonal of the painting, so draws the viewer, and he draws us back and forth. So he's also allowing us to see other people joining, and he's pointing the uh, shepherds in towards the baby Jesus. Now let's talk about Giotto's nativity scene in Inassisi. I mean, this is a beautiful scene. We've talked about it before. It's the one with the two baby Jesuses. And um, Joseph seems to be in deep thought or prayer here, a lot more contemplative than than the active look in that Barocci version you were just discussing. Yes, actually, we've just backed up in time, about 200 years in this one, and, and this this is, again, yes, we've talked about it before, because Pope Francis likes it, I mm-hmm. like it, everybody seems to great, like it, and scene. you'll notice there's two baby Jesuses in it. So there's a sort of a baby Jesus at the top, which Mary holds. Mary's kind of grasping the child, she's looking straight at him, there are little angels all around them, and you see the, the, the element of the worship and adoration and the angels and the supernatural event. But down on the bottom, baby Jesus, as babies do, is getting a little bath after being born, and Joseph is watching that. He's sort of supervising that activity. And it's it's an interesting division of labor. So you have Mary contemplating, you know, God, and you have Joseph supervising the baby mm. who is receiving his bath. And this kind of way of trying to draw together, and this is very, very, very important in the 15th, 14th century, very, very, very important trying to draw together Jesus's human experience as well as his divinity. Love it. Now, in the interest of time, we've got to get to this other image that you sent me. Um, I'm not sure who painted it, but what in the world is Joseph doing with his sock in this image? We don't know who painted it. It's a work that showed up in Antwerp. It's the 15th century painting uh, from a church in, in Antwerp, and it's a fascinating way that northern artists, so the Flemish artists, and and some German artists get really interested in that aspect of Joseph looking over the human needs of the child. And what happens is that in 1100, at long last, they find a relic for St. Joseph. So there's not been any kind of relic for St. Joseph up until the, the first millennium. Then they find what are called his hosen, his old socks. 
And the story begins, the story circulates, that when Jesus is born, it's December, and they're in a cave, and there's a newborn child, Joseph removed his own socks and cut them up in order to make swaddling clothes. Wow. And that's often paired, by the way, in this image, you just see him, like, ripping up his socks, which you have to admit is kind of comic relief, yeah. but it's a lead into a much deeper and much more important theme that they're exploring, which is these are usually paired with the Magi. And so you see the Magi running around with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but Joseph, who gives this the, the clothes off his own body, the wow. simple, humble gift that we would make the mistake of laughing at, but is actually a first necessity. And it ties in very beautifully in the way that Pope Francis and Patrice Corday talks about the contributions of people who go unnoticed, the mm. incredible things that people do that we don't appreciate, but it's those heroic little acts that bring us in line with the Father's heart of Joseph. Oh my gosh, you just gave me chills. That is so beautiful. The humility of Joseph and the humility of our Lord as well in in taking the socks as his first garment on earth. And incredible thoughts here from Liz Lev. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You do the same, Liz. Thank you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me. Leah at SacredHeartRadio.com. That's Leah at SacredHeartRadio.com. This is Father Stephen Alcott from St. Gertrude Parish in Madeira. St. Bernard's Prayer to the Virgin Mary. Maiden and mother, daughter of thine own son, beyond all creatures lowly and lifted high, of the eternal design, the cornerstone, thou art she who did man's substance glorify, so that its own Maker did not eschew even to be made of its mortality. Within thy womb, the love was kindled new by generation of whose warmth supreme this flower to bloom in peace eternal grew. Here thou to us art the full noonday beam of love revealed. Below, to mortal sight, hope that forever springs in living stream. Lady, Thou art so great and hast such might, that whoso crave grace, nor to thee repair, their longing even without wing seeketh flight. Thy charity doth not only him upbear who prays, but in thy bounty's large excess, thou oftentimes dost even forerun the prayer. In thee is pity, in thee tenderness, in thee magnificence, in thee the sum of all that in creation most can bless. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Father Stephen Alcott. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father John Gavin. He's author of Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer and a professor of theology and patristics at Holy Cross. Good morning, Father. Welcome back. Good morning. Now, we are going to be talking about the Nativity and the angels today. Mm-hmm. Can, can you first of all just speak to how the angels show up in the story of the birth of our Lord? 
Well, certainly we see that they are involved right from the moment of the Annunciation, of course, with the angel Gabriel. But then we also see, for instance, their presence in the Gospel of Luke, in the Nativity story that we read there in chapter 2, in which they come to the shepherds and, of course, proclaim the birth of the Lord. And even we see how they then give praise and glory to God for what has taken place, uh, that, uh, as we heard here, on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased, this great event, this salvation, uh, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. So they are very much present, uh, as we see at the Nativity itself. Now, one thing that I love about talking to you, Father, is that you bring to our attention how we can take things for granted because we Mm. get so used to them when we hear them. And, And of course, the story of the nativity would be one that that we hear so often that that we take these things for granted. So with that in mind, Mm. can you speak to why it could be somewhat puzzling that the angels would be rejoicing in the Incarnation? Sure. I mean, that question does arise for the fathers of the Church and others, because, I mean, first of all, we have to remember what angels are. Uh, They are pure spirit, uh, and therefore incorporeal. They don't have bodies. Uh, Unlike our souls, they are not ordered toward matter or material bodies. Uh, Also, that we have, of course, among the angels, we have the unfallen angels, those who uh, remain with uh, with God and this praise and glory and service of God. And then we also have the fallen angels, those are what are called demons, right, who in the uh, letter of Jude we hear turn from their principle, their arche, their, uh, to God from God, to turn in on themselves. And these turning, this turning or this continuing presence with God is definitive for them, right? Uh, there isn't going to be a conversion of any kind. They are uh, in, the, we could say, the direction that they are. And so the question that can arise with the Incarnation, first of all, would be, if they are beings of pure spirit, why would the Incarnation, the enfleshment, uh, the embodiment of God, mean anything to them? And then also, if uh, they don't require redemption and conversion, as we, we do, uh, why, again, would they need the Incarnation? Why would it be significant? You'd think, well, maybe they'd just be indifferent to it. Right? Hmm. Strange, so strange thing to think about, but yeah, some of the fathers ask these questions. Yeah. Well, thanks to the fathers, we have some really interesting insights that can come to that. So let's talk about some of the reasons that the fathers Mm -hmm. gave for why the angels would, in fact, rejoice at this news, at this event. So first of all, how is the job of the angels actually ordered toward the Incarnation? Well, we can actually say, yes, the Fathers say regularly that the mission or very vocation, we could say, of angels is toward uh, the service and announcing of the Incarnation, the enfleshment of God. And we have to remember, angel itself means uh, an announcer, a messenger. And so when we apply this to all of these 
spiritual beings, their very mission is defined by that announcing, that message. And one person who really brings this out, for instance, is St. Augustine, who even in reading or interpreting the presence of the angels in, say, the Old Testament, sees them even then announcing and proclaiming uh, the Incarnation, uh, the, the coming of Christ. And so, for instance, Augustine interprets uh, the Patriarch Jacob's vision of the angels ascending and descending on what is translated often as a, as a ladder, right, in, his, in Bethel. Uh, he sees that, and he writes, Augustine, God's angels ascend and descend upon the Son of Man, because the Son of Man is enthroned on high, and to him we ascend in our hearts. In this respect, he is our head. But the Son of Man is here below, inasmuch as his body is on earth. In other words, he says what we see there in that vision in the Old Testament is already the angels serving God by moving up and down to the Incarnation, God with us in flesh, and moving upward in service of the Trinity of God, and becoming the announcers and messengers of that. And so the angels themselves find their fulfillment in giving that proclamation uh, even before the birth of Christ and after. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where they find their fulfillment, their very vocation as messengers. Yeah, I mean, I was struck as I was looking through Luke chapter 2, Father, mm-hmm. before talking to you. Um, verse 21, this is after Jesus is born, and it's when he's being circumcised and named. And it says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name mm. given by the angel before right. he was conceived in the womb. That's right. So that uh, we can see even there the uh, the angel, uh, the angels proclaiming uh, who Jesus is and his coming uh, even before the birth. Now. Moving on then, the Incarnation also, I mean, when we think about why the angels would rejoice, I mean, the Incarnation Mm -hmm. allows for the gates of heaven to open for people to join them in heaven. Yes, exactly. And sometimes we see this expressed as restoring the full citizenship of heaven, right? And I think it can be understood among the fathers in two different ways. I mean, one interesting tradition that we have among the fathers, and it goes beyond them as well, is that human beings in some way, uh, well, in fact, restore the lost angels, those that uh, we now call demons, in the citizenship of heaven. So, for instance, St. Gregory the Great uh, writes, since we believe that the multitude of humanity that ascends there to heaven is equal to the multitude of angels who never left. It remains for those humans returning to their heavenly home that they imitate something of the bands of angelic spirits in the process of their return. In other words, this loss of citizenship from the demons is now filled by human beings who are restored in Christ in the redemption that we have through the Incarnation. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a remarkable tradition there. But we don't even have to necessarily see it as kind of replacing the angels. Uh, we can also simply see it as 
the angels rejoicing in the fullness of the communion of saints, right? Uh, Augustine uses, of course, his famous image of the city of God to convey this. He says, Indeed, with the angels, we are the one city of God, of which it is said in the Psalms, most glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Uh, In other words, the angels rejoice because now we are one city, uh, this glorious city of God, and together uh, we make up that fullness of really, uh, well, we the, the choir that surrounds God and gives God glory. How could they not rejoice when they see this, you know, really fulfilled and brought about in this astounding, astounding moment of uh, our Lord's birth? Absolutely. I love that idea, the fullness of the communion of saints. So if we have the fullness of the communion of saints, that means that we can have the fullness of the praise and glory of God. Absolutely. Uh you know, in, in a way, you know, they've, they've been, they've been, they were missing part of the choir, right? Hmm, yeah. And uh, there were there were voices that weren't there, and then suddenly, uh, through this uh, the self-emptying of God in becoming one with us, all of that is 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 brought about and restored. And really, I mean, we we can hear that at mass, right? When we when we repeat the words of the angels at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest. Yes, exactly. And not only in those words, but also uh, this restoration of giving God glory, right? Uh, One of the uh, hymns, of course, that uh, we also have in the Mass, and that was very significant for the Fathers, is what we call the Trisagion, right? Mm. Uh, The triple holy that comes from Isaiah's vision in uh, the book of Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah chapter 6, in which he sees the seraphim proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole of earth, or the whole earth is full of his glory. Excuse me. Uh, wonderful things on us singing that hymn with the angels, even in the liturgy, right? Uh, St. Maximus, the confessor in the 6th century, wrote about how the angels rejoice in the fact that now we, too, are part of that harmony in divine praising, uh, even now in the liturgy, and that will take place in the age to come. Uh, Heavenly and earthly powers are united in this song. So, yes, we see that in the nativity scene, and then, again, we see this uh, in this every celebration of the Mass. So beautiful. We've been talking to Father John Gavin. His book is called Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer. It's from Catholic University of America Press. Father, really loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You bet, and I look forward to having you back again soon, Father. Thank you again. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 35 minutes past the hour. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. 
The Virgin Mary is the church's model of faith and charity. Hello, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney from Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish, inviting you to take a moment to reflect on words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church about Mary, the mother of Jesus. In paragraph number 967 of the Catechism, we read the following. By her complete adherence to the Father's will, to his Son's redemptive work, and to every prompting of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary is the Church's model of faith and charity. Thus, she is a preeminent and wholly unique member of the Church. Indeed, she is the exemplary realization of the Church. In a world that bombards us with so many attractions and allurements, it's sometimes difficult to recall the will of God and even more difficult to live it out. This selection from the Catechism reminds us of the complete adherence Mary gave to the will of the Father. She lived her entire life doing only those things that were part of His plan. May each of us see her as the ultimate role model after whom we might fashion our own lives. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Joseph Pierce, author of Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, as well as a number of different books exploring faith and literature. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, Matt. So today we are talking about the Father Christmas letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, and Anna Mitchell is a journalist, so she does not deal in counterfactuals, but I can't help but wonder, would we have the kind of material and the depth of material that we have from Tolkien if he were not himself a father? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, he wrote The Hobbit for his own children. Um, I think that uh, Tolkien's role as paterfamilias uh, is, is crucial to, to his vocation as a writer, as a storyteller. And we see that that vocation in these annual letters he wrote to his own children, uh, uh, purportedly from Father Christmas. All right. So these Father Christmas letters are absolutely I think charming is one of the best words, best adjectives to describe them, but tell us about them. Well, basically, you know, every year, starting in, I think, I think it was about 1925, when his children were all very young, in fact, uh, one of them hadn't even been born, um, that uh, he started writing, uh, replying, basically. His children sent letters to, to, to Father Christmas, uh, and Father Christmas started to, to respond. And these, these letters became more elaborate and lengthier. Uh, the stories became more involved. There was a darker element came in over the years as the children got older and could handle it. Uh, so there were goblins and and what have you. So <clears throat> it's an ongoing saga of Father Christmas's life. He gives them an update every year of what he, what he's been up to in the previous twelve months. So you're saying that it starts off as you know a charming little tale, and next thing you know, darker elements are introduced, and there are goblins. And are you sure you're not describing the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Well, actually, uh, Tolkien sort of started writing The Lord of the Rings about the time he finished writing the Father Christmas letters. So uh, one, you, could, you could, if you wanted to stretch it, say that The Lord of the Rings is a, is a sequel to the Father Christmas letters. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, it's a, we're looking at the prequel here. But uh, with this, you know, 
in a sense, you you can get a you know a, an idea of, of what this was like for Tolkien to write these letters to his children if you were just to read the text of it. But you kind of have to read the hand in which he wrote them, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the wonderful thing about the volume, uh, the Father Christmas Letters, was published in 1976, just uh, three years after uh, uh, Tolkien's death, uh, is it has his hand, you know, his his, his drawings, his colored colored illustrations that came with the letters, his handwritten text. I mean, it's a beautiful work of art. And, you know, the, the, the best Christmas, the best children's books, you know, the illustrations are a large part of what it is. And, and Tolkien didn't just write these uh, letters, he actually illustrated them. So we see Tolkien the artist as well. It's a very charming volume. Oh, it's extremely charming. And, uh, you know, these, these, this wobbly pen font um, that he, uh, you know, Father Christmas apologizes for in, in some of this and, you know, how he writes it uh, to the, the different children. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of, some might say, well, Christmas is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and we need to focus on Christ fully God and fully man. Uh, but why why would Tolkien see, as a faithful Catholic, that this is something that is, is to be, celebrated and enjoyed and savored this question of the whole father christmas and the mystery of it all yeah i mean you know there's something as, as evocative and powerful as the nativity of our lord is going to uh give birth to a whole culture and that's basically what christmas has done father christmas himself by the way was a character in, uh, initially in the medieval mystery plays in England. And during the time when, in, believe it or not, the, uh, Christmas was banned in England under the Puritans after Cromwell's victory in the English Civil War, uh, England actually for, for several years was uh, like the White Witch in Narnia, was a place where it was uh, always winter and never Christmas. Well, it was at that time that Father Christmas emerged as, as, as a figure, as a symbol of resistance. Uh, for this, the spirit of Merry England, the spirit of Catholic England, uh, this, the true spirit of, of Christmas. So there is a connection between the, the, the character and history of Father Christmas, and not just Christmas itself, but a defense of Christmas against those who would uh, would destroy it. Well, this kind of brings in another element of something, uh, which is sort of the English question of Christmas and the role that is played in English culture over time. Uh, you know, Tolkien's a Catholic. Catholics have already always celebrated Christmas. Uh, you know, really with St. Francis of Assisi, it, it turns it up a notch. But Anglicans, not necessarily so much. You know, I find it interesting that, you know, George Washington comes and uh, crosses the Delaware uh, to make his surprise attack on Christmas Eve because George Washington and his buddies weren't exactly celebrating Christmas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, but that, I, I would say uh, in, uh, it's not often you hear me say something positive about Anglicanism, but you know that that, that, that whole Dickensian 19th century uh, resurrection of the Christmas spirit, which we see in, in, in Dickens's A Christmas Carol, for instance, and there was a whole from that time a whole heritage of new Christmas carols being written. So you know, my favourite Christmas carols are Holly and the Ivy, which is older and and and, and Catholic, but. My other favorite is probably In the Big Midwinter, which was actually originally a poem by Christina Rossetti, who was an Anglican, set to music by Ray Fawn Williams. Uh, so there was, the, the, to be fair, I mean, I, one thing I miss actually about living over here is uh, in December you have carol services throughout England in the, in the, in the small parish churches, uh, which really just get someone into the spirit of the season. And uh, so that's something I miss. So to be fair, 
to the Anglicans. They, 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 they signed on to the Christmas spirit in the 19th century. And uh, I, I think that even though they don't want to believe in Christ anymore, they go through the motions with the, with the carol services and what have you. Well, now you're in America where we've got Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, and Rudolph got run over by a reindeer, and Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, so um, this, is, this is where we are these days as a culture. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we, we actually, we'll be, we'll be watching the Christmas stories, and, uh, you know, that's the quintessential, actually secular American Christmas from just after World War II, and it actually reminds me very much funnily enough, of my own childhood Christmases in England in the 60s. So, um, you know, even when you endeavor to remove Christ from Christmas, it's the spirit of Christ that animates the season. And if you you remove the the, the authentic Christian presence from Christmas altogether, in the end, you don't have Christmas. Well, and you can't remove it from Christmas, even if you don't say the name of Jesus, which— is barely even referenced in Dickens as a Christmas Carol, but what is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge but a story of conversion? What is the story of the Grinch but a story of conversion? What is the story of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life but a story of conversion? I mean, you can't get away from it. No, and that's that, and, and that's and that's the power of the stories is is the power of the conversion. And and to be fair, uh, you know, the, the, to Bob Cratchit does take Tiny Tim to to church on on Christmas Eve. So and there is there is there is a a, a Christian a, a definitely a Christian uh, dimension to a Christmas Carol, all being understated. It would be understated, of course, largely because Scrooge is the central character, and he's the he and he's the uh, the scoffer, so uh, the humbug, etc. Indeed, and uh, you know, we started talking about the Christmas letters, the Father Christmas letters of Tolkien, and now we've talked about almost everything else in the process. <laughs> but uh, I, I do have one last question for you. You said something when you were on the journey home the most recent time uh, that even as an atheist, you said that your heart was still moved by Christmas carols. Why do you think that is? Well, because there's something that really pulls at the heartstrings um, about the whole nativity story and everything about it, the songs attached to it. So even when I wasn't a believer and Christ was not a feature in my life for 364 days of the year, when Christmas came around, he was still sort of, uh, if, if not at the center, he was very much there in the picture. Uh, and that was a powerful presence that grew. If, if you like, it was a seed, a mustard seed that was there. And at, at the appropriate time, watered by grace, it came to fruition in my conversion. And that is why I don't get too cynical about the commercialization of Christmas, Joseph, because I never, you never know whose heart is being enlarged by all this. Yes, I mean, you know, anybody, you only have to scratch the commercial surface to find the Christian presence beneath. So uh, the veneer is, is, is not the thing itself, and anybody who wants to go, deep, go, go, go deeper finds Christ very quickly. Well, Joseph Pierce, we thank you for this tour of basically every possible topic related to Christmas and literature and the Incarnation, and we hope you and your whole family have a wonderful and Merry Christmas. Thank you, Matt. You too. Merry Christmas to you and everybody at Sacred Heart Radio. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. 
The Christmas Means Life campaign encourages you to add another person to your Christmas list, the baby Jesus, as represented by women and children in need by making a donation to your local pregnancy center. Another option is to support the JP2 Life Center, committed to saving lives with free pregnancy help services, holistic OBGYN care, and education programs. Find out more at jpiilifecenter.org. That's jpiilifecenter.org. Because Christmas means life. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's S-O-N-RiseMorningShow.com. One of the reasons we should go to Mass is because, if you look in the Catechism, you will see the fruits of Holy Communion. And these are remarkable things that we can receive at every Mass that we attend. We encounter the risen Lord, and He shares something of His divine life and love with us. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, live from the EWTN Chapel, every morning, 8 Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Philip Michael Tangora, pastor, canon lawyer, and author of Holiness and Living the Sacramental Life. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Anna. We are going to be looking at the theology of one of the best known and most loved Christmas carols. Best known and most loved for good reason. Adeste Fideles, or in English, O Come All Ye Faithful. First of all, Father, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this hymn? Yeah, and I really appreciate being able to not be the theologian or the canon lawyer this morning, but being able to use my other background as an opera singer and conductor. You're an opera singer and conductor? What? I was. That was my former life. I started off in music conservatory at Westminster Choir College. You are kidding me. I had no idea. Well, this is (laughs) awesome. Okay, go on. So, Adeste Fidelis, or O Come All Ye Faithful, was actually written by King John IV of Portugal, who was also known as Marcos Portugal in his compositions. And the interesting thing about it was that it made its way to the Portuguese embassy in London, which was one of the few places during the height of the anti-Catholic legislation in England that had its own Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church's doors opened up out into the street. And so there's that wonderful line in O Come All Ye Faithful, where it's Regem Angelorum in, a, in the Latin, and that is a play on words, because Regem Angelorum, king of the angels, could also be taken as 
the, a statement of who the true king of England is, because England in Latin is Anglia. And so this was a great way of evangelizing and calling the Anglicans out on the street, walking by the Portuguese embassy where the Catholic Church faced out to the street, to come back to the true king of England. And uh, I understand that the English translation, I learned this just recently, was was um, very poetically translated into English by uh, a Catholic convert um, in the, yes. uh, the, uh, the John Henry Newman crowd. Yes, yes. So there was um, a Catholic uh, convert and ultimately a priest, uh, Frederick Oakley, uh, whose English translation is pretty much what we use to this day. And he uh, had a beautiful, his translation emphasizes the beauty of the fact that we are coming to our Lord, our King, who was born simply yet proclaimed by the angels, proclaimed uh, being the true uh, God and King. And I think that that is uh, at the heart of this hymn, is that in, hum, in humility, Jesus comes to us. But at the same time, he is God, and he brings us uh, the glory of God. Yeah, this hymn is just chock full of some amazingly poetic theology. And I think in, in the translation into English, I don't know if this was was purposeful or not, but, you know, of course, the great Advent hymn is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And here we are with Adeste Fideles, O Come, All Ye Faithful, Now He Is Here. Yes, so it creates a parallel. So we're calling forth that He comes, and now we're calling the faithful to come because He has arrived. Exactly. There is the beautiful parallel that exists there. And in the second verse, we see a lot of language that we would have seen in the Creed, in the mm-hmm. Nicene Creed. Deum de Deo, Lumen de Lumine, uh, this whole note, the Deum Verum, Genitum non Factum, all this that He is God of God, light from light, true God, uh, begotten, not made. Uh, all of that language that is coming from the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325 is being echoed because it's truly instructing the people, this is who he is, true God and true man. And we need to take Christmas seriously. We need to realize that this is the Savior. This is God himself who has become man to bring us deliverance and that he is not just any ethical leader or prophet, but that he is God himself. And a big encouragement to listeners to go look at the Latin of this hymn, because you do see a lot of references, as you said, to the creed, quoting the creed directly. And uh, Mm -hmm. another of the verses uh, quotes the Gospel of John, verbum caro factum, the word made flesh. Yes, yes. And because it is truly the, because if you were a Catholic at that time, remember in the extraordinary form, the last gospel was always the prologue to John's gospel, where in verse 14, verbum caro factum est, and the word became flesh. 
And so this would resonate in a Catholic audience's ears that this is what is being celebrated. The Word is becoming flesh. And so having that, this is really the most Catholic of Christmas hymns because it is evoking all of the authentic Catholic imagery and faith, uh, whether from the Creed, from the prologue to John's Gospel, which was the last Gospel in the Tridentine Liturgy, and or just and that echoing of the coming of the Lord uh, as that parallel to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, like you brought out. Father, can I put you on the spot to sing maybe just the first verse for us since you're a former opera singer? <laughs> you can choose Latin or English. Oh, fideles, leti triumphans est venite, venite in Bethlehem, natum videte, regem angelorum, Venite adoremus, venite adoremus, venite adoremus, dominum. Father, I'm like in tears. That was incredible. Thank you so much. (laughs) That what a Christmas treat for us, Father Philip Michael Tangora. You are such a gift. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yes, and Merry Christmas to you, Father. Thank you again. Wow, what a way to close the show. Hope you enjoyed the previous hour. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer written by St. Augustine of Hippo. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let the just rejoice, for their justifier is born. Let the sick and infirm rejoice, for their Savior is born. Let captives rejoice, for their Redeemer is born. Let slaves rejoice, for their Master is born. Let free people rejoice, for their liberator is born. Let all Christians rejoice, for Jesus Christ is born. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and along with Matt Swaim, today we're heading to the archives to revisit some of our favorite interviews of Days Gone By. And up this hour, we'll talk to Dr. Peter Brown on The Star of Bethlehem. Stephanie Mann will discuss G.K. Chesterton on Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Steve Ray will join us to discuss the life of St. Stephen, the first martyr, whose feast day is December 26th. Plus, 
Rita Heikenfeld on the gifts of the Magi, and Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio on the deeper meaning of the elements of the Nativity. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. It's the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, happy to be joined by Dr. Peter Brown. He's academic dean at Catholic Distance University. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So one of the most mysterious parts of the story of the Magi, which, of course, we celebrate on the Feast of the Epiphany, is that star that they follow to Bethlehem. Now, a lot of people try to explain the star scientifically, right, They through astronomy. So what are some of those theories, Dr. Brown, and why do you have a problem with them? Well, the, the most common theories, you know, are, are, you know, that the star was really a comet, um, that it was, you know, a planetary alignment or planetary conjunction. Uh, a supernova has been proposed before. Um, shooting stars, one of the more crazy uh, <laughs> ideas, um, one of the least plausible of all those. But the, the basic problem with all of them, Annie, is that, you know, and, and the ancients knew this part of it as well as we do. Stars are, you know, in what was thought of as the firmament, which is which is very, very, very far away from where we on, are on Earth. And, and although they do move, they don't really move in ways that can direct people. They, they can't really lead people places, and they can't really settle over, a, you know, a, a house in a, in a city, um, you know, over, you know where, where a young boy is staying. I mean, it, it, you know, to do that, they would have to leave the firmament, and they'd have to come down to Earth. I mean, it's, it's, it's not too hard to see that if, if, you, if you kind of imagine, imagine it a little bit. I mean, just imagine trying to follow a star in the sky, and, and you'll, you know, even, even if it's a satellite or something like that, modern, we can actually see satellites move. If you're on the country, you can see them move. But even then, those are a lot closer than, uh, than the stars are, and, and yet, nevertheless, there's no way a satellite could, could actually lead you to a specific place on Earth. Okay, so if we don't have an an explanation through astronomy, then then what else is there? Can you tell us about the theory that the star of Bethlehem was actually an angel? Yeah, so 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 the the basic idea kind of starts with with the, the fact that the, the star, in order to do what what the text of Matthew says that it did, if, if taken at face value, would really have to to leave the firmament and come down to Earth. And in other words, it would have to kind of do um, what what an angel could do or, or would do. And there is a lot of similarity in the Bible between stars and angels. Um, for, for one thing, stars and angels both can fight wars. I mean, in, in the book of Judges, there's actually a fight, you know, um, or sorry, yeah, in Judges, there's a fight that, that involves stars. Um, Stars can actually, and angels are both radiant, they're bright. Um, stars and angels um, can come down and descend um, in, in certain, you know, unusual circumstances. And they can serve as guides as well. And so there's probably not an absolute identification in the ancient mind between stars and angels, but there's, there's a lot of sort of overlap in the, in the way the two things are, are conceived. And so... You know, the angel interpretation or, or the, the sort of descending star interpretation kind of tends to overlap in antiquity. And then both, both were very common readings of, of the star of Bethlehem in, in, in the ancient world prior to the Renaissance. 
Well, I want to talk to you about that in a minute, but I want to talk about this idea of an angel being a guide. I mean, is there a scriptural precedent that you can tell us about where where an angel would take the form of light to lead someone to a specific location? Well, sure. I mean, the, the probably the most famous example is uh, is leading Israel through 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 the the uh, the the desert through the wilderness. Um, we're told explicitly that's the angel of the Lord. Now, of course, there's a, you know, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. Now, of course, there's a huge debate over how the angel of the Lord relates to the Lord himself. But, but sort of sidestepping that debate, um, you know, the, the the text does tell us it's a, it's a it's a malach. It's a, it's an angel. So, um, you know, in other words, if if we think it's God or we think it's an angel, if it is God, it's God appearing in the form of of a malach. Uh, you know, that is that is a messenger or a watcher. So. Um, you know, that's probably the most famous example, and there are other examples as well. Now, let's get back to uh, the ancient understanding of the Star of Bethlehem. Did the Church Fathers indicate such an understanding that the Star of Bethlehem might be an angel? Probably the earliest record we have of um, of the, the angel interpretation would probably go back to Origen, uh, John Chrysostom, uh, Theophilact, who, who was someone who followed uh, John Chrysostom a lot in his writings, and, and interestingly enough, the proto evangelium of James also um, assumed that the star had had basically left the firmament and came down, much much as the Holy Spirit came down and descended, you know, in, uh, on Jesus when he was baptized, you know, in the form of a dove. In other words, they they saw the stories as in some way being parallel. Um, you, you see that in Chrysostom, the proto evangelium. Um, Origin really kind of took the idea and ran with it, um, but but yeah, so so, uh, so so yes, there are, and and there's there's a number of Eastern fathers too that not as quite as well known um, in the West, but these are these are the Eastern, not the Eastern Greek speaking fathers, but the Eastern Syriac speaking fathers, uh, like Ishodot of Merv, like Ben Abreus and Abarabreus and and uh, people like that. Um, this is a part of the church, actually. Just as a side note, that we we should probably learn a little bit more about everyone that likes the eastern fathers they're the most famous the western fathers are kind of the second most famous but but these the far eastern fathers the the, the sort of uh, semitic fathers are, are ones that i think have been relatively neglected and, and that, that it's a very common uh, interpretation among them as well well ultimately dr brown why do you think that it's more appropriate to have a supernatural as opposed to a natural explanation for the star of bethlehem well, it just seems to fit with the, with the story the story a lot better. Um, Jesus's birth is a is a very special occurrence, and it would seem to to warrant um, some kind of supernatural or preternatural intervention. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that in Luke's gospel warrants the appearance of an angel to appear to Mary. It it earlier in Matthew's gospel warrants the appearance of an angel. Uh, to appear to Joseph in a dream, actually, in several different different occasions. So it, it would seem fitting that um, that that you know God would make provisions um, in, in in other ways uh, for, for all the things that are to happen in the story to to, to make sense. And um, yeah, so so and I, by the way, and I, I think I think it's easy to explain why Matthew uses the term star rather than angel, and and that's because he wants. To us to see the link between the messianic prophecy in Numbers 18 of of the, you know the, the star that that is that is coming, um, who, who, which which was a well known messianic prophecy at the time. So um, the, the appearance of the star before the appearance of um, of, of a messiah figure. So um, 
I think that that's that that part of it is fairly easy to explain why why he would do that. The, the word "aster" in Greek is is a hook word that that reminds us, among other things, but but especially that numbers eighteen text. Very interesting information coming from Dr. Peter Brown. He's academic dean at Catholic Distance University. And uh, doc, if listeners are interested in learning more about the classes that you all offer at CDU, where can they get more information? Uh, probably the easiest place would be just our website at uh, www.cdu.edu. Thanks for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. For 150 years, the Komboni missionaries have followed in the footsteps of their founders and Daniel Komboni. We are an active missionary group sharing our deep faith in God through service to the poorest and most abandoned people around the world, satisfying both the physical and spiritual needs of the people in our mission. Please support our mission work with a generous year-end gift today. Thank you for your prayers and kindness. Give today at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside, so... Give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. He is honored as a monk, doctor of the church, and the father of English history. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. The Venerable Bede spent almost his entire life in an English monastery, praying, teaching, and writing. Called Venerable for his wisdom and holiness, he wrote commentaries on scripture and is renowned for his ecclesiastical history of the English people. He is the only English-born Doctor of the Church. He died in 735 and was named a doctor in 1899. To find out more, visit EWTN.com and click on Catholicism. We're joined now by Stephanie Mann from Wichita, Kansas, and she is the author of Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endured the English Reformation, and uh, also talking about uh, all kinds of things related to English Catholicism. Stephanie, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Well, today we're going to be talking about Ebenezer Scrooge and his conversion, but before we get into that, I wonder if you have a favorite uh, version of the Christmas Carol, a favorite movie form or play form. I, I didn't prep you for this question, so it's okay That's if you okay. have to think about it. Well, I think uh, if you're looking for just the dramatic one, my favorite one is the one with George C. Scott. I knew you I were going to say really that. Good. But I also like the musical. I think the musical, the one with Albert Finney, that that's just mm-hmm. hilarious. Especially that long scene of the, you know, them all singing "Thank you very much." It's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. It's because Scrooge is dead, <laughs> and that's what they're so happy about. And he thinks it's, uh, that they're that they're thanking him for something uh, that he's really done for them, and what he's done is die. Uh, so Annie is gesturing that's, wildly that's, that she wants to insert her opinion into this conversation. Like to say that my favorite version is a Muppet. Ah, oh, that Muppet, you stole mine. <laughs> No, Annie, I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I've seen that one. But you haven't the, seen it? But 
Oh man, no. the, oh, the, my. the only real, I mean, it's one of the most faithful uh, adaptations of A Christmas Carol. The uh, yeah. one glaring error um, is that instead of there being Jacob Marley, it's Marley and Marley, uh, a pair of brothers who are extortionists, and it's uh, they're played by Waldorf and Statler, the two guys from the Peanut Gallery. Oh, yes. They're okay. fantastic. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and Fozzie Bear plays uh, not Fezziwig, but Fozziewig. So Fozziewig, that's very good. That's, that, good. that's appropriate. Well, um, Stephanie... We are not the first people to have been fascinated with this story, the ultimate Christmas conversion story in American, well, in English literature, the conversion of Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what Chesterton had to say about this conversion. Well, what Chesterton points out is that, you know, first of all, for Scrooge to be converted, it means there has to be something in Scrooge that is good. So Scrooge cannot be seen as, you know, just a, a totally obviously, unredeemable character. He has something in him. He has a vulnerability, and Dickens highlights that. But what Chesterton also points out is we are converted. As much as as Scrooge is converted, we are the ones who are converted. We're reminded of what Christmas really is and what it is to be a Christian. Chesterton speaks, he wrote a lot about Dickens. He wrote a, uh, and a Christmas Carol. He wrote a, a study of Dickens, and then he also wrote a critical study called uh, Appreciations and Criticisms. And he notes that, that kind of in spite of himself, what Dickens was doing was reviving the Catholic spirit of Christmas. Because, you know, you might remember that in English history... Oh, the Puritans uh, hated Christmas. Yeah, yeah par- pardon the pun, but Christmas fell on hard times in England oh, from the 17th century. A bad yes. Dickens pun. And then, of course, it, it, it came back with the restoration of the monarchy uh, with uh, Charles II. But still, uh, Dickens really did a great thing to revive the kind of medieval spirit of of a. Uh, Christmas without really being a medievalist or, in fact, being such a modernist. There is one bad thing that that Dickens did when he revived Christmas, and that was he truncated it. You know, he got rid of the 12 days of Christmas and focused it all on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and and the celebration with with family and and, and in church, but he did truncate it. But So that's one of the things that, that Chesterton points out is that, in, really, in spite of himself, he revived, because Dickens wasn't a very traditional or historically interested uh, a writer. He was a, like like uh, Chesterton, he was a, uh, a journalist. He was writing about the then and now, but he actually revived history, and he, he brought back Christmas to some of its medieval glory and some of its Catholic glory that, it, that England had certainly lost and had actually tried to destroy in the 17th century. Well, there's also this idea, uh, too, in the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, of uh, the idea of sin and free will that is common to any uh, Christian understanding, well, unless you're Calvinist. And uh, when Marley appears to Scrooge, and he's in chains, the specter of Marley is there. It says, and this is a quote, it says, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? And it's uh, the idea that only at the end does Marley realize that all these attachments, all this greed, all this extortion is literally a chain dragging him down to hell. Yes, and then that... that Scrooge, he's telling Scrooge, you have a chance. You're still alive. You can make a change. You can go out and do what I did not do. He, uh, uh, 
there's always that good line that, that uh, Scrooge says, well, you were always a good man of business, Marley. And Marley replies, business, mankind was my business, and I should have been looking about for the common welfare. And then, and, and I should have walked among the people. Now, when I walk among the people as a, as a spirit, I can do nothing. But you have an opportunity, and that's what the three spirits will do is call uh, Ebenezer Scrooge to recognize the, in the ghost of Christmas past, present and future, uh, the d- choices he has made, he needs to make, and he can avoid making if he, if he acts on Christmas Day to start changing his life and, and turning his life around. So yes, you're, it, you're exactly right that it is the ultimate conversion story, in a way, for us to, to look at at Christmas time. That's why we rejoice in it, I think, and that's why A Christmas Carol is so popular, because it shows someone can change, and they can change for the better, and then they can influence us, and we will want to renew what else, whatever is lacking in the uh, observance of Christmas in us. We'll want to revive it and uh, return to a fuller, more full observance of the Christmas spirit. Well, and that spirit of giving and charity, because that's what really happens when uh, Scrooge is converted. It's not unlike Zacchaeus, right? <laughs> so yes, yeah, you've immediately got... he, he starts canceling the debts. He takes care of, uh, uh, he wants to save Tiny Tim. He wants to help the Cratchit family. He revives his, and also the charity in a, uh, not just the sense of giving people things, but uh, healing the the uh, distance between himself and his nephew. He goes to his uh, nephew's uh, house for Christmas, reconciles with his his young wife. And so it's not just uh, physical and material and monetary charity, but the charity of family that that is revived in in uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. So that he he uh, practices Christmas better than anyone in the in the dear old cities, as uh, Dickens says at the end. Do you think that it could be easy to uh, watch a, a, a film like A Christmas Carol in any versions where, you know, Goofy's Jacob Marley and, you know, Scrooge McDuck is Scrooge or, or whatever, whatever it happens to be, and think to ourselves, man, if these Wall Street barons would just watch this, then the world would be a better place. But I think that there's a bit of Scrooge in almost all of us this time of year that yeah. can uh, really fall out of uh, the spirit of the season. Right, I think so, and I think that's what, one of the things that Chesterton picks up on so well is that it's not just that, because, uh, uh, you know, Dickens was always concerned about uh, reform and uh, the fairness and justice in society. It's not just at that level, it's at everybody's level. Everyone needs this, this kind of conversion. It's not just Scrooge, but, but uh, everyone who needs it, and so... I think that's true. We could we could always say it's someone else who needs to be converted when we know it's we should know it's really us. It's me who needs to be converted. As Chesterton famously said when the, I think it was the London Times had a column, they invited people to uh, write in and identify what was wrong with the world, and Chesterton wrote in and said, "Dear gentlemen, I am." Yeah, it's signed me. GK. I'm what's wrong with the world? All right. Well, Stephanie, if we want to read your thoughts on Ebenezer Scrooge and GK Chesterton, where's the best place to find them? They can come to my blog, search for Supremacy and Survival Blogspot, and then uh, search for Chesterton Christmas in the search engine. In fact, I posted it on your uh, Facebook page so everyone can find it real easily. Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us, and we'll talk to you again soon. God bless you. Thank you. I'm Matt Swaim. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack with a Catechism Moment. What is grace? We speak a lot about it in our faith life, and we need it to be faithful to God. 
Is grace something that can be objectified or measured? All these questions find a response in the Catechism in paragraphs 1996 to 2005. Paragraph 1996 states that grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become the children of God. 1997 states that grace is our participation or a sharing in the life of God. Paragraph 2002 reminds us that God has created man in his image by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know and love him. For God's grace to be operative in our hearts, we must allow it to work. Another question we might have is how do we know we are in a state of grace? Paragraph 2005 reminds us that since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified or even saved. However, reflection on God's blessings in our life and in the lives of the saints offers us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. These gifts of grace that God gives us are not only for ourselves, but they're to be shared with our neighbor, especially with those in need. When Christ went to the cross, he held nothing back. He gave it all away. As we receive God's grace, let us not attempt to stock it up for ourselves, but instead let us freely give it away to those who need it. God's grace will never stop flowing in us as long as we lovingly share and pour out God's free, unmerited gifts to others. The Sunrise Morning Show continues, and one of those feasts that sometimes gets sort of passed over because there's so much else going on uh, because the Christmas season has just started, and that's the Feast of St. Stephen. We're going to talk more about this early deacon and martyr in the church with Steve Ray, at catholicconvert.com. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Good to talk with you. And I like talking about Stephen because uh, I have a name that uh, came right from the New Testament. My mom named me Stephen when she became a Christian at a Billy Graham uh, uh, crusade. It was actually, she heard it on the radio, became a Christian in 1953 and had had miscarriages for 12 years. And after becoming a Christian said, Dear Jesus, give me children. Now that I found you, I'll raise them to, to be Christians. And I, she got pregnant with me, and I was born a year later after 12 years of miscarriages. She didn't have saints like we as the Catholics do all through the, the centuries, but she had Bible names. So I got the name Stephen. And that is one of the most epic Bible names that you can name a kid, because if we look at the witness of St. Stephen, I mean, he is right there at the front lines of the early church as not just a preacher, but as a deacon. This is a new office that was not really established by Jesus, but established by the people who Jesus put in charge of the church. Exactly. He is not only a first deacon, which is uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. There were seven of them chosen. We can talk about why they were chosen in a minute. But he was also the first martyr that we have in our church uh, calendar, the first one that was martyred for the faith. And he has in the New Testament the longest sermon or defense, the longest speech, except for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
That's pretty incredible. Uh, I wonder if you could maybe get into what a deacon like Stephen might have done. Of course, Stephen was not a deacon for very long, at least according to the account from Acts. So it's hard to know what he personally did, but what was he set out to do? Well, that whole there was a problem in the early church because there were Greek believers and Jewish believers, and we have no concept about how how what a uh, conflict that was. If you remember the movie called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier, where the white man is, uh, the black man has come to tell the family he's marrying their white daughter, and it was a big, it was Tracy, uh, Spencer Tracy in it, and it was a big to-do because of this interracial marriage. Well, this is the same kind of a thing. You've got Jews and Gentiles who have been alienated from each other. Now they're coming into one community, and the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews said, hey, it's not fair. You guys are taking better care of the Hebrews, the Jewish widows, than you are us Greek widows. Is that because we're from the Gentiles or whatever? There was a big conflict. So Peter says, you know what, because there's so many of us now, our job as apostles isn't to be taking care of these problems and making sure you've got more food than this person. or the We've got to preach and we have to pray and we have to do what apostles do. So they decided, Peter decided as the head of the church, that they needed someone called diakonos. That's the Greek word for servers. That's where the word deacon comes from, diakonos. And they were going to be servers. So they picked seven of them. They had to have the qualities... They had to be of good repute and full of the spirit and wisdom. They were chosen by the apostles, the disciples, because all the people in the room, all the believers, thousands of them now, said, these seven guys are exceptional. We would like to see these seven guys. The apostles approved. They laid their hands on these seven guys, and most of them were Greek speakers, so that they would be, uh, nobody could accuse them of not taking care of the Greeks as well as the Hebrews, the Gentiles as well as the uh, circumcised. So then he, they, that's how he was chosen. So it was originally to help serve tables, to make sure that people were treated fairly and received the same amount of food and distribution, were taken care of equally. And Stephen was one of the seven who was chosen as a diakonos, or the first deacon. You know, Stephen, well, let's back up a little bit. If you read in the Gospels, there uh, is this high drama and this long-standing plot to figure out how in the world are we going to catch Jesus in a word so that we can put him on trial and execute him because he's troublesome to us, right? In the qu- case of Stephen, it's a pretty quick turnaround. I mean, he ticks off the, the the Jewish hierarchy at the time pretty quickly, and he's put to death pretty quickly. What did he do that got his sentence passed down that fast? Well, Jesus was trying to avoid it because he knew it wasn't his time yet because he had to go through three years of ministry. So he, he would kind of say things in such a way as to not get himself killed yet. Stephen, on the other hand, he just pokes him right in the nose. I mean, this guy, he doesn't hold anything back. He just, he, he, they challenge him and they accuse him of these things, and he gives them a defense or a speech which rubs their nose in it. And then he, at the end, he pokes them right in the nose. And that, boy, they just, they were like rabid beasts, they just threw up, they gripped their garments, and they screamed, and they gritted their teeth, and they went after this guy and dragged him out and stoned him. But the reason was, he, <clears throat> he gives this story of history of the Old Testament. I just finished writing my commentary on Genesis, <clears throat> and I used Stephen's speech a lot in there, because Stephen gives a New Testament explanation 
and exposition, I should say, of the story of Genesis of the patriarchs. And what he shows, the Jews always wanted to think that it was the Holy Land, and it was the temple, and that is where God is. But what happened? God didn't choose someone from that land. He chose Abram from way far away over in Babylon in Ur of the Chaldees. All of the story, how Moses was chosen, not in the Promised Land, Moses was chosen out in the desert of Sinai. God is not limited just to Israel and the temple. God is bigger than that. He meets Moses in, in Sinai. He meets Abraham over in Ur of the Chaldees, totally different places. And he goes through the story, and he minimizes the need for the temple and for the land and shows through his whole sermon, and it's, it's done through a story. It's a fascinating story if you read it with this in mind, that he shows that, yes, God chose this land for you, and he chose the temple for you, but he's not limited to that. And the Gentiles who are outside of this land and this temple and your circumcision and your little restricted way of life, these Gentiles are also God's people, and now through Jesus Christ, he's brought them all in together. So it's, it's really a snub to the, to the Jews in their whole temple complex idea that you're righteous because you go to the temple. And he opens the door like Peter had done earlier. He, again, reaffirms that this is open to the Gentiles. And then he does the thing that just puts this frosting on the cake, the left hook that just gets him right under the jaw. He says, I see now the Son of Man, Son of Man seated at the right hand of glory. That just drives them crazy because they know Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, I saw one coming through the clouds like the Son of Man. And he was seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and given a kingdom which will have no end. The Jews knew that that was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And Stephen says that Jesus, who you killed, he's the one. I see him. Look, he's right there at the right hand of God in heaven. That was all it took. That was blasphemy. That was total apostasy, and they had to put an end to it. You know, if there's people out there listening who don't know much about the story of St. Stephen, they at least know that Saul of Tarsus, who would then, you know, a few chapters later become St. Paul, is there at the stoning. And I think I mentioned to you in an email before this, I was at a church in Northern Virginia, and they had all these stained glass windows where they had two saints standing by each other. They had a Francis Sinclair window and a Benedict and Scholastica window, and a couple of other windows are sort of like Cosmos and Damien, some, you know, paired saints. And they had this window and it's Paul and Stephen standing there as saints in the communion of saints. I don't know that people realize how crazy it is that we've got a, a saint on a stained glass window next to the guy he murdered. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. I made a movie. I'm going to do a little advertisement here. I made a movie called Paul Contending for the Faith. And I demonstrate a stoning. Actually, I go out in, the, in a, a quarry, and I demonstrate what happened to Stephen and how the stones came down on him. And the way I did it, well, just real quickly, I, they used to have the person on a cliff at a quarry, and they'd push him off the cliff, the guilty one, they'd push him off. And if he didn't die, then the one who made the main claim could throw a big rock down, boom, and hit him. And then everybody else had to join in with the rocks. And uh, I used a big watermelon, just so you'll know it. I had a watermelon, and I did miss from up on top of the 12-foot the cliff. I threw that rock down, and that watermelon went kerplush. We put it in slow motion. But, yes, why would you have the man who is being stoned like that 
and the guy who was there approving of it and who murdered him, why would you put them together? This is why, and I know you know this, Matt, you just set me up with that question. But the reason is, is because St. Stephen prayed that day, kind of like Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they do, and he prayed. And those prayers, St. Augustine said, if it were not for the prayer of St. Stephen, the church would not have St. Paul. In other words, it was the prayers of St. Stephen, those sincere prayers for his assassins that that brought Saul of Tarsus, the one who was there. I think he was representing the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel at the time. He was a representative, and it says he was giving his approval. In other words, he was like the representative saying, the court approves of this. Go ahead and kill this man. I'll hold your cloaks, and if you don't do it, I'll throw the last stone if I have to. But here, I'll hold your cloaks, and I'm giving approval. It was that man who was killing Stephen who was the recipient of Stephen's prayers. And that's because of the prayers of St. Stephen. That's why we have St. Paul. And I, I was in the church in, of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome, and I saw the same thing as you, Matt. I saw inside, right next to the place where Paul's bones are, a chapel to St. Stephen. And my first thought was, why would you put the murderer, put this guy in the church with his murderer? Ah, because there's a link. <laughs> There is an absolute link. And when Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, Stephen is the model. Because who came out of that but one of the greatest preachers that the church has ever known who converted more people uh, that set forth the trajectory of the church for the next 20 centuries. It's, a, it's an incredible story. St. Stephen, pray for us on this, his feast day. Steve Ray, we've got CatholicConvert.com linked to SunriseMorningShow.com. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Matt. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. There are people in the Bible whose names we never learn, but their lives are perfect examples of faith. This is true for a father simply called the royal official. This man comes to Jesus with an urgent request. His son lies sick at home near the point of death. The father rushes off to Cana, some twelve miles from their home in Capernaum by the sea. All the way, he was determined to bring Jesus with him back to his son's bedside in Capernaum, where Jesus would place his hands on the child and heal him. But something truly amazing happens. He comes back without Jesus by his side. And on the way, his servants catch up with him and announce his son is cured. He asked when his son made a turn for the better, and they said, at the hour that Jesus had announced his son would live. The father believes simply on the basis of the word Jesus spoke. We have much to learn from this official and his example of faith. 
For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. It's always great to catch up with Rita Heikenfeld from AboutEating.com to discuss Bible foods and herbs and spices. Good morning, Rita. Well, good morning. This is one of your favorite subjects. I love discussing this every year uh, because I've got my Magi set up. They're off to the side of my nativity scene, and they won't make their way all the way to the nativity scene until Epiphany in January. But we do have a great opportunity this morning to talk about the gifts that they will bring on Epiphany. That's right. You know, uh, when we think of the three kings, we think, of course, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in the Bible passage, Matt, it's actually Matthew in, in uh, chapter 2, um, we know that gold, frankincense, and myrrh, those three gifts were among the gifts to Jesus by what we call the biblical magi, and um, quote from out of the East, unquote. So, um, yes, and we set ours off to the side as well until Epiphany. I think that's a wonderful way to explain their presence, don't you? I do, and uh, of course, Matthew's Gospel is the only place that the Magi show up, and he doesn't even tell us how many there are. Tradition tells us three, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. Uh, But uh, these were obviously learned men, uh, men who studied the stars. As Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio calls them, Three wise guys from the east side. <laughs> Good analogy. All right, so let's start with gold today and the symbolism behind that gift of the Magi. Well, we know that gold symbolized royalty, Matt. Um, and there's a couple kind, kinds of gold. The edible gold um, that I sometimes use in my classes comes in a box, and it's called gold leaf. And it comes in sheets, flakes, or sprinkles. Um, and I always say it's, it's just made just so that you can impress your guests at your next dinner party. Um, And, you know, of course it's safe to eat because it's edible, but I have tasted it, and edible gold doesn't have much flavor. Now, the gold that we're all familiar with, of course, the metallic gold that we make our jewelry, um, et cetera, is biologically inert, what we say, and that's why dentists can use it for fillings, caps, and crowns. So there's really two kinds of gold. That's good, because wouldn't it be weird if your gold tooth tasted like something all the time? (laughs) <laughs> you might be chewing a lot more than you should. <laughs> I think so. Uh, frankincense, uh, another one that we might not be as familiar with. It's not as much in daily use as gold, but tell us about the symbolism behind that gift. Well, frankincense, uh, Matt, symbolized divinity. Um, it represented the life, and it was also used to anoint newborns back then. And what it is, it's actually a resin that's scraped from the bark of the Boswellia tree. Um, and if you look at it, it's not the prettiest uh, tree on the block, I say. It's sort of scraggly, but it's very, very strong. And then after these resins are hardened, they're actually called tears. And I have some frankincense that I, I just love, and they do look like little golden tears. And the Egyptians had a use for the charred resin after they'd finished burning it. Yeah, think of Cleopatra. Um, they ground it um, into a powder with some other ingredients, and they called it coal, K-O-H-L. Um, and yeah, you're right, it was, it was used to make that distinctive black eye, eyeliner that we see in so many figures in Egyptian art. Um, and of course, frankincense has been used since antiquity in religious rituals, too. It's considered to be very healing, too. And you know, I always think of the calming effect that I get 
when incense is burned, um, and I just love that ritual at church. But it's also combined, here's the deal that many people don't know, Matt, with turmeric and capsules, because frankincense, it's called boswellia. If you look on the ingredient list, and it's got great anti-inflammatory quality. So just think that ancient gift um, is still used today to keep us healthy. Okay, so let's talk about myrrh now. Well, you know, myrrh isn't as well-known as the other two, and it symbolized Jesus' future death. Um, And here's the reason, too. It was an ingredient that they used in embalming at that time, Matt. And it's also a resin, and it comes from the type of of a balsam tree. It's the sap, um, and it can also come from other trees, but basically they're balsam. And it was really valuable back then. It was used as an incense burned during funerals. And the legend says that Nero burned a whole year's supply when his wife died. Um, And when you think of the word, the origin of the word, um, the Hebrew word marrow, it means bitter. And today, myrrh is used in perfumes, salves, and if you buy a natural toothpaste, hey, look on the ingredient list, you'll probably see myrrh there for its cleansing qualities. And then there's an Italian spirit that's starting to come be- become pretty popular now, and it's made with myrrh, and it's um, used both as medicine and a popular drink with cola. So it's got a lot of uses. There's bound to be some frou-frou bar in the U.S. where you can get cola and myrrh on the rocks. You bet. And if not, they'll be, after they hear this, they'll be making it. All right, I need to hear about this recipe of yours for loaded twice-baked potato casserole. Oh, my gosh. Talk about something great for the holidays, a good side dish. I always say it's rich enough fit for kings um, for that holiday meal. And I ate it first at my friend Carolyn Grimmie's house. Um, she shared the recipe. I just had to have it. Basically, and I'll have a recipe and um, a photo on my website about eating.com, it's um, potatoes that you boil with some garlic, and then you mash them, and then you mix it with some butter and sour cream and some kind of dairy, like um, I use half and half. You could use milk or whipping cream. Then you stir in um, some cheddar cheese and some bacon that's been cooked and crumbled, and I usually save a little bit of the cheddar cheese and bacon to sprinkle on the top. You put it in a spray 9 by 13 pan, um, sprinkle it with the extra cheese and bacon, and then you just uh, basically heat it till it's hot in a 350 oven, and it is just delicious. And you know what? You can make it ahead, um, bring it to room temperature, and then just um, warm it again in a, in a 350-degree oven, but that time you want to cover it with a bit of foil. It's really delicious. It's called loaded twice-baked potato casserole, and I think it's just right um, since we're talking about kings and gifts. It's a wonderful side dish for our holiday meal. It sounds like the kind of thing that Paul Lockman might warm up the next morning for breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> I've done that, I have to say. I've done that, too. All right, Rita Heikenfeld, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's a good way to do so? They just can log on to abouteating.com. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. 
Call to see how much you can save. 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare. 844-334-3245. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. The Catholic MomCast brings you all things faith, family, and fun from a Catholic perspective. From the latest news in our community to the latest trends in our homes and the church, you can hear Catholic MomCast as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free at EWTN Podcast Central. Visit EWTNradio.net slash podcasts today. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio with the Crossroads Initiative. Get information about going on pilgrimage with him to the Holy Land, the land of Jesus' birth at DRItaly.com. Also a professor at Catholic Distance University. Good morning, Doc. Good morning, Anna. Well, you know, we who are committed Catholics, Doc, do our best to keep Christ in Christmas. And so, you know, we go to church, we meditate on the nativity, we tell our kids the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. But do you think that many of us think of it as just that, just a story? You know, I find that many people, when they go to the Holy Land, say, oh my gosh, it's real. It's not just a story. These are real places. I can touch these places. Uh, I can see them. Um, So yeah, I mean, sometimes we do think of it as a storybook even even subconsciously kind of a storybook affair but it's a very real nitty-gritty affair and that's kind of the point anna of the incarnation (laughs) that god who is above all things and is impossible to offend or hurt or dirty we call it in a fancy theological way incapable of suffering impassable that's that's the fancy word for it you know but but he's invulnerable impassable and above all all the muck of this world but he voluntarily descends into our nitty-gritty earthy existence not only is he here but he takes on our flesh in a very earthy place in a stable Um, you know a lot of times we sit in front of our cozy fire with our lights on and our sanitized stable scenes you know the manger scenes in our house don't have any smell to them other than maybe some um, pine scent that we spray (laughs) on things but you know stables don't smell very very nice and i don't think anybody here who is a mom listening to this show would 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 have liked to have given birth in a stable amidst animals Uh, but that's what we find here in this christmas story part of what we need to be doing at christmas is pondering the paradox of it all and, and getting in a little deeper into the meaning of these images and symbols that are in this Christmas story, because they're real, but they symbolize something beyond themselves. You know, there's more to it than just the face value of all these the characters and all the images and all the symbols and all the names in Luke's and, Ma- and Matthew's Christmas story. And actually, the scriptures in the Old Testament to which 
these both these stories elude. Yeah, you know, that's something that constantly amazes me is that there really is nothing superfluous. It all has a deeper meaning. And what will be the benefit to our spiritual lives in knowing the deeper meaning beyond these things? Well, first of all, it leads us to awe. And awe is is a magnificent emotion to be wowed. The Lord wants to bring us into the childlike wonder that that is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And if we just pass over the surface of the Christmas story, we may feel warm fuzzies, but we may, we, we're not going to get to that place of awe in the presence of a mystery, hmm. a mystery that is so deep that it can never completely be exhausted. And that's really what the incarnation is all about. When we come into contact with the realities of God, we're transformed to, to get closer and closer to the Lord, to be filled more and more with his His magnificence. That's, that's what it's about. Most definitely. So let's uh, go deeper into some of these aspects of the nativity. First of all, what can we glean from the role of Caesar and the kings and the political figures who are involved in this story? That is a really important question, because without the background of what's going on in the Roman Empire, we really can't understand the, the Christmas story. We got two things. We got to know about the background of the Roman Empire and Herod on one hand, and that's a political situation. And we got to also know about the background of expectation of Israel in the scriptures that that give us hints as to who is coming and why he's coming. So let's start with Caesar Augustus. He's, he's named uh, by name. He's in the Lucan account in Luke chapter 2. So in the day of Caesar Augustus, why is he important figure? Well, it's it, there was tremendous civil war in Rome. Everyone knows about Julius Caesar. From the time of Julius Caesar until Augustus, there was strife and civil war. And when Augustus came, he brought peace. Now, how did he bring peace? He brought peace through force. He Mm. compelled peace through superior force. He put down rebellion and his opponents in the kingdom, you know, uh, and one of them was uh, Mark Antony. So um, everyone knows that guy's name. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he he put down uh, his opponents by force. And in the Roman world, the Roman armies put down all the peoples by force. And so they created this peace. And he was called, because he brought peace, he was called the Prince of Peace. Hmm. And he was also called the Son of God. So his era was called the Peace of Augustus, uh, the Pax Augustana. So that's that's the background to the birth of someone who came to be called the Son of God and the Prince of Peace, but in a very, very different sense, in a true sense. And that's part of what Luke is trying to say here. Now, the real Prince of Peace is not Augustus. It's this babe in a manger who does not come on chariots. He does not come with armies. He comes with persuasion, the power of the spirit, not the power of the sword, Mm. uh, and not compulsion. Um, So that's part of what we're, we're seeing here, just in the mention of Augustus Caesar. And as you said earlier, he made his first appearance in human form in a stable. So tell us about the ox and the ass and the swaddling clothes in which the Lord was wrapped in that manger. The, the only word that's mentioned that alludes to this whole thing is the word manger. Because there was no room in the inn or in the guest room, she laid him in a manger. Now, Luke is writing to Gentiles, but Gentile Christians who had been steeped in the Old Testament as Jews were at that time. 
because that was part of their initiation into the church was being steeped in the Old Testament. So there, that word manger just lights up a reference that goes right back to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1, verse 3. I'm going to read it to you. The ox knows its owner and the ass his master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people does not understand. So that's where we get the ox and the ass from. They're not mentioned in Luke's account. They're mentioned in Isaiah. And so the point here is that in in laying him in a manger, Luke is telling us that there's no room for them in the inn. People don't recognize who Mary, Joseph, and especially Jesus really are. And so he's rejected. He's ignored. And he's put now in a place in this manger to, to, to remind us that, that the animals are smarter in some ways than we human beings. And that the, the manger itself is a food trough. That's important. He is the bread of life. He is the one who is going to give true nourishment, not just to the animals in all creation, but to human beings who are made in the image and likeness of God. And the name of the town is amazing. This town of David happens to have the name Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Hmm. So Christ is laid in a food trough. He is the true place where bread is. He is the bread of life. And, and Bethlehem becomes the house of bread, of true bread, of, of the, the bread that gives eternal life, not just passing, satisfying passing hunger. Uh, so that's really, you know, incredible. That one little detail opens up so much. And also swaddling clothes. The men that the, he's, he's laid, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. If you go back to the book of wisdom, there's a verse in the book of wisdom that says that Solomon, who is the great king and, and the epitome of wisdom, that even though he is a king, he is still wrapped in swaddling clothes. He comes into this world like any other human being and is wrapped in swaddling clothes. So basically this swaddling clothes is another link. It's like a hyperlink back to wisdom. Uh, I believe it's chapter eight. Hmm. And, and, that, and, and that, that Christ is true wisdom, that he is a king, even though he's being wrapped in swaddling clothes. And he's really the new Solomon in that he's true wisdom. Solomon started with wisdom. He prayed for wisdom, but then unfortunately, he kind of fell away and was seduced by idolatry and love of wealth and power. But this is the true Solomon, who is wisdom incarnate we got here. So in these two little lines, we're getting references back from the, to the Old Testament that tell us a whole lot about the identity of this child. Well, Doc, we're going to have to leave it there because we're running out of time. And I want to give you one last chance to uh, put in a plug for folks to uh, get more information about going on pilgrimage to you, with you to the Holy Land to see places like Bethlehem and the other areas of Jesus's life and, and really make this story open up in a new way. And also just tell people to check out this article on the deeper meaning of Christmas to read a lot more. Where can they go? They go to DrItaly.com. So at the top of every page, there's a tab that says pilgrimages. Click on that and you can sign up right online or you can call us. You can write in an, an email and ask questions, but we'd love to have you come. Don't wait. It's a life-changing experience. I absolutely believe it. We've been talking to Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio and we'll have DrItaly.com linked. It's SunriseMorningShow.com. Doc, thank you so much and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and to all. Yes, Merry Christmas to all, and that will do it for the special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. 
Hope you enjoyed the past hour. And if you would like to connect with us on the Sunrise Morning Show, you can always go to sonrisemorningshow.com where you can listen to this program again via podcast on SoundCloud or you can connect with our guests, which are linked in show notes at sonrisemorningshow.com. For Matt Swain and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.